0: How much do you give me if I do this in one take? It'd be a miracle, I know that. It's in my blood like you Olympic the games. Okay, here we go. YOLO, it's London, you only live once, Jones More hurtling talent than a typical Cabba's loans She be like Luda, I'ma ask the clock how low Her times are dropping underneath the ones by Flojo But we got flow though, we call that gore Cause we burning up the ozone, yeah On the beam of the bar, SJ, she make it rain Amos out of yeah you know he getting through some super pain Grin and bear it, and get your head out your rear end Or I'ma lap you though I fall, you know I'm La Severin If we won every medal it wouldn't really shock me, you know what would? If Phelps lost to Ryan Lochte, or Seiji, or Nadia Comaneci Or anyone else from Northwest of Frazee. But I think maybe, you know I won't watch
1: Glee Cause for the next two weeks I'm definitely gonna be Going to the Olympic Games London's, London's calling my name Fly, run, jump, skip, swim, dive Keep the dream alive Spirit, my country's gonna win it. Everybody say USA. Everybody say USA.
0: And I'm back twice, like Usain Bolt, cause he won thrice. And it ain't right, but his celebrating was nice. And in China, he took all the rice. But if he don't watch his back, Blake's gonna win the fight tonight in London, alright. Baby, that's tight. Like Benjamin Franklin, I'm worried lightning might strike my kite and bite the flight. If this Olympics ever oughta be a sight, it might.
1: Going to the Olympic Games, a lot is calling my name. Fly, run, jump, skip, swim, dive, keep the dream alive. I have spirit, my country's gonna win it. Everybody say USA, USA. USA. My dream is now a belief, it's happening, and you'll see I'm tiboine on one knee and giving out the glory Everybody's here, the magic reappears Blood, sweat, tears, it only happens every four years My dream is now a belief, it's happening, and you'll see I'm tiboine on one knee and giving out the glory Everybody's here, the magic reappears Blood, sweat, tears, it only happens every four years The is it, calling my name. Fly, run, jump, get swim, dive, keep the dream alive I've got spirit, my country's gonna win everybody say
0: Welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast show today. Special show today. Olympic talk, running talk, history, all those things on the show. Because, And that's why we, we dug up a, a historical item from the the depths of YouTube. This um, Olympic song was made in the summer of 2012. That's That's nine years ago now, made in anticipation of the great London Olympics game. London Olympics. So hopefully you enjoyed that. Uh, but now we are on the show here and um, very excited because I, I've been wanting to do a show that kind of looked at some cool historical anecdotes as they relate to cross country skiing, and I still think I'm going to include that as a segment in upcoming Cedar Skier podcast. But today we're going a little bit off the cuff. So if you're if you're hoping for something that was well organized. I shouldn't say that. Maybe now people will just stop listening entirely. Anyway, um, this isn't going to be. This isn't super planned out. We just are not having time here in the studios to do a lot of that. But I, I do want us to, to talk about some fun historical things as they relate to the Olympic Trials, as well as some uh, immediate news coming up Olympic Trials. So the Olympic Trials, the Track and Field Trial, is going to be in Eugene, Oregon, and I just have read there's an article on uh Japan Running News April 23rd uh 2021 is this still can you hear me okay test 1 2 just want to get that mic in the right spot so what it says here the uh, a press conference Hayward Field of course the new Hayward Field it just looks stunning i don't know if you've seen this they've been they now have run a couple of meets there yesterday or this weekend they had the an Oregon a huge Oregon invite Monster Five K Field. And then the next day was the Grand Prix with some professional professional runners. Not pre, isn't Prefontaine, the Grand Prix. And these are some some races leading up to Oh, I clicked on the wrong article. Oh no. Leading up to the Olympic Games. Uh okay, I uh, sorry that was there's an olympic test event they're doing in tokyo that has no spectators but i where is the article about we just got an article here uh about the olympic trials at hayward field we got to pull that up hayward field olympic trials in the news because i they just announced i think if there were going to be fans there uh oh yeah and it's a mess it's a mess all right, so this is on Sports Illustrated. Actually, the the headline: Tracktown USA to refund all fans who bought tickets to U.S. Olympic Track and Field Trials. This is from April twenty second. Chris Chavez, who uh, he does the Sidious Meg uh, podcast, and that's a pretty big running website as well with articles and and I think he I think he used to work for ESPN or Sports Illustrated. He obviously must still write for SI or have some connection with them. It says, though, Tracktown USA, the local organizing committee for the U.S. Olympic track and field trials, announced it will refund all fans who bought tickets to watch the event at the newly renovated Hayward Field in Eugene, Oregon, June 18th through the 27th. The decision was made after communication with local and state health regulators. If spectators are allowed at the championship meet that will determine the U.S. Olympic team for the summer games in Tokyo, a set capacity will be determined. A revised ticketing program will be announced in May. Demand for tickets to the Olympic trials continues to be at an all-time high, and we are confident that some number of spectators will be able to attend the event if regulations allow, Tracktown USA CEO Michael Riley said in a statement. Unfortunately, we now know that we won't be able to both comply with important public health regulations and, and fulfill the tickets that have already been sold. We have considered numerous alternatives and have determined that taking this action now is the best inter- in the best interest of our customers, Riley added. By starting over with an updated seat map and policies that account for new regulations, we are providing the public with the opportunity to make purchasing decisions based on information that is very different from when tickets were originally on sale. Track 10 USA's athletes' families will have the first opportunity to purchase t- tickets before sales open up to the general public. Fans who retained their tickets before the refund will have the next priority. Tickets will only be sold for individual days of competition, and there will be a limit as to how many seats and days of competition can be purchased by a customer. This is really a bummer um, I know that the Olympic trials ends up being and I saw this when it when it came out and on Twitter there were there were people commenting in the comment sections of some of the headlines and um, people who you know plan their family vacations around this maybe bought tickets a long time ago at bottom you know 2019 perhaps even in preparation for the original dates in 2020 and uh, I know at least one friend of mine that their whole family went out there for the entire um, trials, the whole 10 day experience. So they had hotels for all 10 days. There was about five of them. They had, you know, tickets, um, for all 10 days, great seats, you know, they just really went all in. And I think that's not that uncommon. That's, that's actually fairly common for hardcore running fans to do. And so, um, there is just a lot of confusion and mess. I know I saw at least one person mention, hey, you know, I, I bought tickets from a secondary source. You know, so someone bought the tickets and then sold them to him and probably, you know, was charged a lot. And, and he's like, well, am I just out of luck here? Because I think um, that this, the whole refund process and all of that, it, you know, it's it's got to go back to the original ticket holder. It's just a mess. I, I don't know how. I, I would almost I almost feel like the, the logistical nightmare of trying to be fair in refunding and giving opportunity to purchase new tickets would be more of a headache than just um, saying everyone can come. You know, I, I understand that they want to be safe, but at, at we're we're now at what um month and a half out. The vaccine is being rolled out um, really well. You know, we're we're over a year and a half from the start of this pandemic. Um, I th- I think at this point, don't you just kind of put it in the hands of the customers? Hey, if you want to come, this is the risk that is being posed. Okay, you you're going to be you're going to be in, in a crowded area. If you don't want to come, you don't have to come. If you want to wear a mask and come, you can wear a mask and come. You know, like just give give the people the chance. Uh, and, and I, I mean, yeah, sure. What's, the, what's the worst that could happen here? I, I, let's play it out. I guess the worst that could happen would be, um, I I think you'd have a large uh, super spreader event. Remember when that was a term? You'd have a super spreader event that would, you know, spread COVID and spike COVID. And you potentially get an athlete sick. And I would say that getting an athlete sick would actually be even worse than a super spreader. Because at this point, I don't think we could actually have a super spreader in, a, in an area that would cause like the entire country or the whole world to be in trouble. You know what I mean? Maybe at the Olympics, if we thought this virus was again, like, Black Plague, like, in danger and, and spreading power, which it, it isn't, but if it was, you know, then then an Olympic Games could kind of do that, because you'd have nations from all over the world, then they go back, and you'd have, like, worldwide spread, but an Olympic Trials, it's, like, you know, running, too, we've got running fans only going there, and then coming back to their homes, like, I don't know, it, yeah, it, the worst that could happen there is a super spreader and then really the worst thing is you get one of our uh, metal hopefuls sick so what I think they probably should do in this case honestly is you first let the athletes vote do you want and give them a few choices 100% capacity fans 50% capacity fans with like really you know spacing no fans and first let them vote see what they want if they want 100% open, then you go and because they know they're there, then there's a risk, right? There's a risk of, of, um, you contracting COVID, which there kind of would be anyway. Like if I was an athlete, I think I'd just say, yeah, I'll take, I want the fans and I'd, I, I, I want you guys to protect us in and out of stadiums, right? Which they, they do anyway. (laughs) It's not, this isn't like the Fargo South invite. Okay. Where like fans finish their 800 heat and then just walk behind a fence and give random people hugs you know it's the olympic trials they're they're stationed up now it is hayward the old hayward <laughs> the old hayward It would have been a little more of a risk because the intimacy of the stadium like yeah you did have mo Farah like running and then you do a victory lap and he is like high five in the crowd that was part of the cool part of hayward i don't think i think the new hayward isn't going to have as much of that anyway so um, I don't think you have to worry, but that's, again, on the athlete. Don't do your victory lap. Don't shake hands with random people. I think they can be smart. So give the athletes a vote. If they want 100%, then you go with that, and that that would be the easiest thing because then the next step is you go, okay, fans, here's the deal. We're opening up. If you have a ticket, you can come. If you don't want to, you don't have to. That's on you. We're going to give you some freedom here to choose. This is the risk. Okay, and it'll look a little different. We're going to protect athletes a little more. And I do think, you know, if they choose 50%, which is, it sounds kind of like that's what this is going to end up being is about 50%. So they're already kind of making that choice. Um, If the athletes choose that, then, then you have a logistical nightmare on your hands, which is what we have here. And, and that's fine. If they're will, if they've got a plan to do it, that's fine. I do think ultimately though, with a reduced uh, fan section, um, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's going to limit the risk of COVID spread, but it's not going to eliminate it completely. So I think we're going to have a little bit of inconsistency here again, as we have lately for the last 12 months, because it's really not going to eliminate it entirely. Uh, but it will I think it will reduce it a little bit at least. And then you're just going to kind of make it less of a pomp and circumstance event, which is sad. It's one of the coolest sporting events I think I've ever witnessed um definitely ever witness in person but even you know watching the super bowl on tv or the the actual olympics on tv i think the olympic trials is actually a better event than the real olympics and i think actually journalists historians sports fanatics might agree the high stakes nature of it um the eliteness of it but also the combination the rags to riches opportunity everyone's equal on the starting line you got to earn your place it just makes for incredible drama and and also the fan atmosphere is huge and having it be in Eugene the 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 capital of running that's just a whole other element that you don't get to see on tv but the the packed Hayward field is insane you do kind of feel that on tv But what you don't really feel is the fact that when those races are over, every single person goes out and they go running and they're on the street and they're talking and they're with vendors and there's all the shoe companies surrounding this, you know, quaint little Eugene community and everyone's talking about what happened. It's like for 11 days, everything's on pause and the only thing that matters in the world is what's happening at the Olympic Uh, trials you know it's the coolest thing ever it's the coolest culture atmosphere ever especially if you're a runner but even if you're not a runner to just see that many people all excited about something so uh, personally honestly I I think you either go no fans or you go all fans I think I think we're kind of sick and tired of this limited stuff and by the way I don't know if you saw this I watched just a little bit of the um Grand Prix with the pro athletes and there were University of Oregon, uh, their track team. They were watching the race from the fans. They they showed a clip of them. They were all sitting right next to each other, and every single one of them either had their mask like on their chin or like didn't really have a mask on. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. I, I don't think I saw anyone without a mask on. But they were all sitting right next to each other, and I don't think I saw anyone with the mask actually over their face. So I don't know, like. Uh, yeah, and these are all these are all athletes. At the beginning of their season, like they've got a lot at stake right now at the University of Oregon. So they were all watching, laughing, having a good time. It just seemed like, you know, what are we doing here? Like I, I yeah, the rest of this article. This is, there's a little bit of controversy, I guess. On April 17th, Oregon announced its spring football game on May 1st will be open to approximately 15% of fans. Students and families voiced their frustration with the university when it decided to host a virtual commencement ceremony on June 12th, just one week before the trials would be held. Oh, yeah, so the whole idea, yeah, graduation's virtual, but the trials aren't. Fans are, are, you know, families are mad. It's like, just don't make either of them virtual, you know, at this point. Hayward Field renovations reportedly cost $270 million, $47,937 to be exact, according to an Oregon Athletics finance report. The new stadium features a permanent seating capacity of $12,650, but can expand to $25,000 for major events. And they've already held two collegiate meets there. I'm okay with Japan saying we're not going to have fans at the actual Olympics, more so, it's a different country, I have no context to know where they're at, in terms of vaccination, risk, you're bringing in people from all over the world, I, I kind of understand that, to be honest, um, but it's still a little bit sad, and I think, again, the only people who are really going to suffer here are going to be, well, athletes and fans, and ultimately the sport, it's a lot of people, <laughs> uh, the Listen, Let's Run podcast, and they're pretty up in arms about the fact that, you know, not being able to cover the Olympic trials as a journalist is going to be huge, in negative consequences for the sport. I think they're kind of right on that. You know, they honestly, they are. How about this for another story in running news, Athletics Weekly, the 100-mile. World and British records fall at the Centurion 100-miler. Alexander Sorokin set the world record in the 100-mile with a time of 11 hours and 14 minutes and 56 seconds. Um, and that broke... Zach Bitter in 2019 in Wisconsin. One of us ran 11 hours, 19 minutes, 18 seconds. About four and a half minutes um, better was Alexander Sorkin over 100 miles. Oh, man. And in and Bitter actually um, ran 104.88 miles in 12 hours. So he kept going. Can you imagine that, too? You break the world record 100 miles and you decide, like, I think I'll just run another basically 8K, another, you know, collegiate cross-country race. Um, that's pretty crazy, but but Sorokin broke both of them. He got to 105.8 miles as well. Oh. And Bitter, ironically, I, I just saw this in the news too, Bitter just won the U.S. 100-mile championship on the road um, and set the course record. I think it was just a little over 12 hours. So I guess, you know, he's going to – his. it's how sad to have a world record that's that hard, you know, that – That hard to get (laughs) and have it fall just two years later. And uh, Bitter also set the treadmill 100-mile record as well. I know one of those, the 1119, I think a 648 pace. So I'm not sure. It's got to be just under 648. Oh, yeah. It says 645 per mile. That's sub-three-hour marathon pace. So that's that's pretty unbelievable. Um, Oh, man. There's your 100-mile, your ultra news for the day and uh coming into the olympics speaking of olympics did you see this following up on our cedar our skiologians and the podcast we had matt grover on as well talking my last question you know a little tug in cheek just kind of going hey would you ever would they ever consider boycotting you know and again i wasn't following quite as closely back in sochi russia so i wasn't aware that like that was um something where they were like uh you know a similar situation as Grover had said now this is from friday april 23rd um the u.s government commission calls for diplomatic boycott of beijing 2022 winter olympics it says further pressure has been put on u.s president joe biden to order a diplomatic boycott of the olympics Um, The U.S. Commission on International uh, Religious Freedom, a government body, presented its annual report which recommends that representatives from the country's government should not attend the games over alleged human rights violation in China. Um, Under that proposal, essentially what would happen is U.S. athletes could still participate, but Biden's government officials would not be able to attend. Uh, And it's kind of interesting. Mitt Romney was the president of the Salt Lake 2002 organizing committee, and... He amended legislation being proposed to implement a diplomatic boycott of the Games, it says in the article following the publication of the report. He uh, says, It's disgusting that the IOC has provided Beijing a platform to host the world and to have a nation which is committing genocide against a people is at the same time hosting an Olympic Games. It's jarring and outrageous, said Romney, as quoted by Bloomberg. Although keen to make a stance against China, Romney said he did not want to deny athletes the chance to fulfill their dreams, insisting they have trained their entire lives to be ready for this moment. I think that's a really good take. Um, Turkle, Nuri Turkle, an Uyghur-American lawyer, member of the USCIRF, that is the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, said he was disappointed a diplomatic boycott had yet to be adopted by the U.S. government. It, And this is his quote, it will be a political suicide, I think, for any politician with a right mind and a decent political stance to attend this because of the ongoing genocide. Uh, and the State Department, the U.S. governments, in response to this, our position on the 2022 Olympics has not changed. We have not discussed and are not discussing any joint boycott with allies and partners. So, kind of interesting. Um Uh, And further on the article, it says tensions between the U.S. and China are strained with American authorities joining the European Union, Canada, and United Kingdom in imposing sanctions on China last month in response to well-documented alleged abuses of human rights in Xinjiang. China issued a series of sanctions in response. The nation has been accused of crimes, including using forced Uyghur labor, operating a mass surveillance program detaining thousands in internment camps, carrying out forced sterilizations, and intentionally destroying Uyghur heritage. Beijing claims the camps are training centers designed to stamp out Islamist extremism and separatism and denies the charges laid against it. There have been calls both for the IOC to strip China of hosting rights for the Games and for other countries to boycott them. IOC President Thomas Bach is a believer that boycotts do not work and has repeatedly called for unity. I think there's a lot a lot of truth in both of that too. It's like what do you do at this point? But um I I do kind of get I I think, you know, the games get chosen so far in advance in in the one sense it's a little hard to know, but at the same time when these games were awarded and we were, we were in Beijing it just in 2008. So sometimes I feel like the IOC and some of these international committees they they go out of their way to award nations with known, documented human rights violations. Um, Two Olympics in a span of 14 years is kind of ridiculous, even if China did not have human rights violations. I mean, the U.S. had an Olympics in 2002, and prior to that, 1984, right? I mean, so 2002, 1984... Um, we have to go back to 1932 when and when it was back in LA. Are those the only Olympics that we've had? Thirty-two? No, 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 no. Sorry, Lake Placid in '80. Okay, but so Lake Placid '80 and then LA in '84. That would be pretty close together. Okay, but still, '80, '84, '32, LA, St. Louis in 1904. Now we're doing our history lesson. I'm just kind of I'm, this out the top of my head. I'm not looking at anything, so I'm just kind of thinking. Um, I, I don't know. Like that, that does bother me a little bit that they that they're going out of their way to go there. I, I, I kind of I kind of agree with the sentiment there. That why are why are we awarding nations with these known human rights violations um, with the Olympic Games? Because in thirty six, when they were in Berlin, I think there was some tension there with what Hitler was doing with some of his views. And it's like, well, they couldn't have anticipated that you know when they award the games to berlin at the time there wasn't world war II in its beginning so they get a pass on that one but look at what had happened and yeah it's just it's interesting and and I, and on this kind of a related note i know this is like not super sports related at all but um, i just read an article about the un i'm going to pull it up here this is actually more crazy than um, Beijing having I mean, the Olympics. But it goes back to my point of why are some of these international organizations like going out of their way? You know, so it, it makes you wonder like what's at the head of this, of the UN, IOC. You know, you've got the world, uh, what was the world, uh, what's uh, World Financial Organization? No, the one that's, oh, that Bill Gates and Nike and all are a part of. Now I can't, I can't think of what it's called. Um, all those huge businesses, corporations. Anyway, uh, this, this article, Iran and China among countries elected to UN's Commission on Status of Women. Both Iran and China were elected to the UN's Commission on the Status of Women yesterday, the former with 48 and the latter with 43 out of a possible 53 votes. That's almost unanimous. Okay. The purpose of the commission is to promote gender equality and the empowerment of women. Here is an excerpt from Amnesty International's 2020 report on Iran's treatment of women. Women continued to face entrenched discrimination in law, including in relation to marriage, divorce, employment, inheritance, and political office. The, quote, morality, police, and vigilantes, enforcing the country's discriminatory and degrading forced veiling laws, continued to subject millions of women and girls to daily harassment and violent attacks, amounting to torture and other ill treatment. Several women's rights defenders remain in prison for campaigning against forced veiling. The authorities failed to criminalize domestic violence, marital rape, early enforced marriage and other gender-based violence against women and girls, which remained widespread. The legal age of marriage for girls stayed at 13, and fathers and grandfathers could obtain permission from courts for their daughters to be married at a younger age. According to official figures, about 30,000 girls under the age of 14 are married every year. The authorities failed to take steps to end impunity for men who kill their wives or daughters and to ensure accountability proportionate to the severity of these crimes. Humans' Rights Watch adds... A married woman may not obtain a passport or travel outside the country without the written permission of her husband. Under the civil code, a husband is accorded the right to choose the place of living and can prevent his wife from having certain occupations if he deems them against family values. Iranian women, unlike men, cannot pass on their nationality to their foreign-born spouses or their children. All right, so Iran. I don't know if they're role models for (laughs) women's rights according to that. Let's go to China. Uyghur women held in concentration camps in the People's Republic of China continue to endure horrors few could conceive of without reading about them. Here's National Review's editorial. The torture endured by these Uyghur women included rape and torture with electric batons, in addition to other unspeakable acts of sexual violence. At one point, a teacher forced to work in the camps recounts witnessing the gang rape of a 20- or 21-year-old girl uh, perpetrated before an audience of 100 detainees the authorities subsequently punished anyone with visibly distressed reaction such atrocities aren't the work of individual status but are deliberate and syst- systematic as dictated by china's foul t- totalitarian regime and communist party general secretary xi jinping state imposed sexual terror is not limited to the millions held in camps The BBC report shows how rape is welded in the camps as a weapon against the Uyghurs as a people. It's also been used in Uyghur homes where, under a party program, Han Han Chinese men are sent to live with and share the beds of women whose husbands have been detained. And in June, it was revealed that the party is engaged in a systematic campaign to forcibly sterilize Uyghur women and abort their pregnancies. Here's the final part of the article. United States Ambassador to the UN, UN, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, has yet to condemn or even comment on the election of either of these states to the commission. One hopes that she will do so eventually with the moral clarity it demands, rather than the uncompassionate humility with which she has approached her job so far. I I, I don't know how... How is this not a massive story? This was April 22nd. That's three days ago. Do we have a follow-up comment on that? I mean, that is pretty pretty crazy how on earth are iran and china elected almost unanimous unanimously to the u.n's commission on status of women i I don't know what is going on there that's just really bizarre really really bizarre um yeah and
1: here it is the season's on the line two receivers left and right
0: well, it's another year, another NFL draft. And I think this year, a couple of things that uh, need to be pointed out is that the NFL has taken yet another step along the the rung up the ladder of promoting an event that isn't that big of a deal to just outlandish proportions. And the sports media world is buying it uh, hook, line, and sinker, and they're just doing everything the NFL wants to do. What I mean by that is... Um, Well, first of all, you know, within my lifetime, if I'm Ben Shapiro here, I could say, I can remember a time when. I can remember when the NFL draft was just a one-day event, and you woke up the next day in the newspaper and read who your team drafted. And before that, you know, maybe... Maybe it was something where you were listening live on the radio. I remember actually listening live on the radio to an NFL draft. So I must have been eight or nine years old when that was going on. My dad was listening to the draft as we we heard some picks take place. I think it was actually the Aaron Rodgers draft. Yeah, it was because I remember the talk and the chatter was how Rodgers kept falling and falling. So that would have been 2004, I think. So I was 13. Uh, But now the draft, a couple years ago, they 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 shifted it to having multiple days, (laughs) which again the the NFL their plan is to keep themselves in the news. 12 months a year, and so rearranging even little subtle things like moving the draft before the release of the schedule, things like that, to kind of just hold people um, right there in tow kind of week after week after week. There's always kind of something happening. You got the Super Bowl, you've got the free agency thing that happens after that, the combine hype, then the draft, schedule release, mini camps, uh, training camp, preseason it just it just never stops um but i saw my, obviously my home station KFan. they or i heard i didn't actually watch it myself but they had like a draft show with a bunch of uh, video youtube monitors everyone is taking the next step in in radio now where everything's got to be a video too there's going to be video segments that they upload and post um and i get it you know this is how they make their money they make their money because our the 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 uh, population Digesting the content wants short videos, therefore advertisers are going to um, be uh, more willing to partner with uh, shows that are doing that. They're going to get more ad revenue, more clicks, more everything. So make chop up your show into tiny little bites, make videos, put them on the internet, uh, 100 different videos, and then those get circulated to your various platforms, TikTok, Twitter, etc., um and those are the those are the pages that get the most views so advertisers want to be a part of that well everyone's doing that with the draft now so they got all their shows and mock drafts and it's just crazy um and I was thinking about this uh, for some reason we do this the most with the NFL uh, uh but kind of the the dissection um and detail and expertise we have with the NFL I'm not explaining this well but basically we've got we, we look at this sport and there's people who are kind of the scientists on the outside okay first of all we have actual coaches they understand the sport at a high level they seem to understand the ins and outs of the game and they see things that that we don't understand as just casual fans and and even People who study the game as fans or reporters they can't really understand, so they got to go to the coaches to try and interpret and understand what's really happening here. And so you got these coaches; they're kind of at the highest level because they played the game. Now they coach the game, so they played the game, they studied the game, they coach it now, and they understand it—the complexity. Okay, and and you've got players coming in, the Tom Brady's, Aaron Rodgers, and and even the Trey Lance's, the rookies, and they come in with a set level of understanding of these complexities, and they usually grow, okay? And, and then we have, we have the media members who, who want to talk about these complexities because it's interesting and fascinating for the everyday fan um, because it, it allows for us to um, make conjectures, make hypotheses, make predictions, analyze our favorite teams, our favorite players, all of that. Ah, uh, because we can we can take a player or a situation and analyze it and cut it apart in so many different ways, really. And, um, and I was thinking thinking about how in this world every single venture is very complicated when it's analyzed at its highest level by those who understand it the most. Okay, what I mean by that is. If you take, for example, a violinist, we all have probably heard someone play a violin at some point in our lives or maybe watched an orchestral performance or whatever, and so we can see from an outsider's viewpoint the complexities of that craft. And we can we can we can see that oh that that might be difficult and we try to sometimes even compare difficulties. Well that is easier than playing the bassoon, which is easier than trying to surf a monster wave in Hawaii, right? We just kind of, we size it up based on what we know, but we just sort of assess this skill level. Now, the the problem is, is unless you're a violinist, an, a trained expert, or someone who has really gone to the well in that field, you really don't get the pedagogical foundations necessary, how difficult that is. You don't understand a lot of the complexities or difficulties behind that craft, okay? And so the, the chatter from the outside it should be sort of meaningless in a way, not completely. I think people who are completely uneducated quote about a certain thing, meaning they just, they just don't know it. Well, it'd be like me talking about soccer. I I don't have enough experience and knowledge to be authoritative on the subject, but I think people um, can, those people can still be valuable. Sometimes the outside eyes, uh, the naive eyes can, can, can point out something that's so obvious that someone who's so deep into their craft misses. But anyway, that's, that's not the point. The point is, each of these crafts, whether it's playing the violin, playing quarterback, or surfing a monster wave, or climbing, free climbing a rock, or cross-country skiing, they're all very complex at the highest level, okay? Now, in our world today, I sort of feel like, in, at least in sports, we have this idea that the NFL... And playing positions, certain positions, especially in the NFL, whether it's quarterback reading the complexities of an NFL defense, um, or or knowing schemes if you're an offensive lineman or whatever. Maybe this is just me hearing this, but I sort of feel like people in general they they raise the bar of the NFL. Like that is the sport that is the most complex, right? And that is the sport that that it, that yeah, you you might watch every week on TV, but you don't really get how in, incredibly complex this is. So when you say the Vikings should have drafted this guy because they need this f- position help, you don't really know what you're talking about because you just don't really understand the game on a comprehensive level. So you can't see the big picture. So just trust the coaches, right? And, and we do this in the NFL more than other sports, and I think it's what it's created is general fans in the fan base, they, they sort of feel like the NFL is this really complex game, Um, and my take is, I think the NFL probably is very complex and everything they're saying is actually fairly valid. What I would also say though, is that's true for every other sport and every other venture. (laughs) Because again, at the highest level, everything has, um, minuscule complexities that are only those who have spent their lifetime really studying and pouring into can even observe okay and this is this is critical because there are some listeners out here out there know who think that I'm kind of crazy here but but it's only because you can ob- just because you can't observe the complexities doesn't mean they don't exist and probably the reason you don't observe those is because you're not actually in that activity at that deep complex level so if you're not a violinist When the violinist starts going off and talking about how complex his craft is in a certain way, you're going to go, isn't that preposterous? Listen to this guy talk about XYZ um, element to this technique and how the big deal that is. Ridiculous. Just play a song. And if you're not an NFL quarterback, you're just gonna go, it's not that complicated. Get a guy in there who can uh who's gutsy and makes a play. Okay. And and so just because you can't you're not aware of the complexities does not mean they don't exist. I, I just I just feel I have this problem that we now as sports media people, we put these NFL players up on such a pedestal because this is the one game where people are really trying to understand the deep the deep level of complexity and the nature of the sport because it's so popular. So there's tons of people looking at it, tons of people thinking and following it. And, and so then there, yeah, there's just this promotion. Like, you, you know, it's just amazing how, how the, the game and the film study and Rogers has to spend 45 hours um, a week, you know, studying film. It's so complex. And isn't it amazing? This decision they made. It's like, yeah, it is amazing, but it's not that amazing. People are doing this every day in every craft of life to a degree and the best in the world that their craft are doing things that are, that are so minuscule and complex you'd be blown away if you understood what you know the first chair trumpet player in the Chicago um symphony orchestra had to do to, to to uh to be perfect in his craft. You'd be much more blown away than than knowing what Tom Brady does. Sorry, you would. And and even if you look at guys like, you know, Johannes Klabo in cross country skiing, when you start analyzing some of the things he does uh from a technique stance, um, I, I think some of those things would probably blow us out of the water too. And I'm I'm not I'm not a cross country ski expert to the degree that I would be able to vouch and say, I can explain that to you. You know? But um yeah, I just think I think we need to overall just step back and recognize that every every part of this world that we live in, every every job, every role, every subject matter. Um, If you become an expert at it, there's a lot of layers of complexity to it. So don't start barking down this road of, Um, you know, this NFL draft stuff is really complex. You just don't really get it. And and these guys have been analyzing defenses. And this guy's going to – we can plug and play him in here because, you know, the coach has said this, this, this. And we just love how this guy is going to be a student of the game and blah, blah, blah. And, oh, wow, let's just – we should worship these NFL players because they're such students of the game and they study things and they get it. It's like, come on. You know what? These NFL players, they do have to study their game. They do have to try and understand the basic – You know, pedagogical elements to their to their craft at a very complex and comprehensive level. But you know what? Um, So do. So does every elite best in the world at what they do person. Everybody who's the best in the world at what they do understands their craft at a complex and comprehensive level. And you know what? They do it at a much deeper level than most NFL players. Most NFL prospects are extremely athletic physical specimens who have to kind of be convinced that their game is kind of complex and might require some film study. Just remember that, too. You know, even they they were talking about throwing mechanics on this guy. I think it was Justin Fields and saying, well, you know, he's got this little hitch and his, his throwing motion should be like a candy cane motion. And he's got all these hitches on the way. And so if they fix that, he's golden. And I'm sure poor Justin Fields is like, you know, he's all wrapped up, he's he grew up thinking, I just thought you just kinda of threw the football. Now these people are trying to explain to me the complexities of, of throwing mechanics. I better I better like fix that. Like this this is a lot harder than just picking up a ball and playing. He's right. Okay, so I don't like it when, when people come along and go, come on, Justin, just play the game. There's an element of truth to what that, that statement, okay, not, not, not dismissing it completely, but, but Fields is right to go, yeah, these people who have analyzed mechanics are saying, you know, like, this is the way that's the most efficient for the quickest release for the strongest, most accurate, consistent way of throwing. Fine, fine, fine. But Justin, don't get caught up in thinking that your throwing mechanics thing is any different in in terms of degree of complexity than the, than the person who's trying to surf a big wave in Hawaii, than the person who's sitting second chair in the Philharmonic, than um, those of us looking and trying to understand the most efficient way to V2. Okay, like that. that's the part that I just realized is we, we hear these people so much we start to think that they have some sort of different thing. There's my NFL draft. Super analysis, so we had to include it in our show too, right? Uh, (laughs) Hot take on the NFL draft, and I suppose I I suppose it's worth bringing up how you know the whole point of having podcasts is for people to have commentary to analyze things, to give their thoughts and opinions, and um, maybe the real question is is can someone who has no experience in playing the sport really provide a meaningful commentary on it? If that's the question being raised, I would say if, if meaningful, yes, they can. Because I, I do think certainly the guys like um, who've done 40 years in the booth and they've maybe watched Bemidji State hockey since its inception, They, even if they haven't played hockey, they have a unique perspective and an experience and a knowledge that is meaningful for the game, meaningful for people playing in it. Um, is it necessarily in the moment uh, uh, accurate and worthwhile to teach someone? Is it infallible? Of course not. You know, And even uh, I would say if you've got a guy who's played in, in a sport for 15 or 20 years and is an exceptionally talented um, analytical person, who sees the game in a different way, too, and then can also verbalize it, communicate it, and is clear in their speech. Those are the people, I think, who have more meaningful commentary on games. And uh, again, it can't just be, well, this guy was the best in his sport, and now we're going to make him a broadcaster, so that's going to be the best. doesn't work like that. Um, and we've seen athletes who've been terrible at, at commentating, mostly because there's a gap. Their communication ability isn't great. and or they were maybe great at their sport and they understood product, but they didn't understand process. It's important for us to remember that in, you know, as we come off this conversation, we we're just talking about um, different um, different pursuits, different crafts, different skills. In all of those things, violinist, surfing, football, there is product and there's process. Product is what we see take place. It's the music the violinist produces. It's the game-winning shot that a, a player makes. It's, it's actually riding the wave. And many athletes can produce product, and product is the thing that pays the bills. It's all that we care about uh, as a fan and as a coach as a general manager you need product <clears throat> you need it and some people produce but they don't understand the process behind it they might be a great shooter but they don't really understand the mechanics behind it they might be able to play uh, triple high c on their trumpet but they don't understand why and they might be fluent in slurring back and forth between different partials but they don't understand why Um, That's the process element. And there are some people who understand all of the mechanics behind a craft but aren't physically capable of producing. So they have process, but they don't have product. And I I think if we're talking about commentators who give the most meaningful um, observations when it comes to sports or anything, it's the people who have process and product in their back pocket. They have both. They they produce and they understand why, they get the mechanics. They've been there, they've done that, but but they they also they get the inner they get the mechanics that rec- that are required to produce uh, a high-level product. So, those are the people if I was someone hiring someone to to give meaningful commenta- commentating commentary on a sport or on anything, <coughs> it would be people who have both of those things. And uh, I think, I, I don't know, as someone who's listened to, to a lot of sports talk radio and watched a fair amount of events in sports too, I, I definitely, I definitely, I feel like I can, I've enjoyed certain people more or less than others, but um, my ability to go, I think this guy does have meaningful commentary. He knows what he's talking about and here's why I, I, I'm growing in my ability to assess those things. So I'm not going to come out and say, I can, I can say it right now. And then, of course, you know, for some of us, we don't really care that much about that. We actually just want the entertainment. And these were the guys like Charles Barkley. I think are the best in the NBA TNT. He's played in the league. He's famous. He knows what he's doing, and he's not afraid to just kind of speak his mind. So he he does a he's he's got a big personality. Um, those are the guys that are fun and entertaining on a on a completely different level. Well, do we have time to get to some? Olympic, uh, Olympic trials history, we might have to save that for our afternoon show today or the one that gets posted later. Actually, we, I should make a couple of good com predictions for the NFL draft. Just a couple of wrap-up. Here's what I thought. Um, I think I, I, some things I like, some things I don't like. One thing I I like uh, is the Denver Bronco pick, Patrick Sertan Jr., or the second 6'2", 208 pounds out of Alabama. He's a defensive back. His dad is the Patrick Sertan. um, Two-time All-Pro, three-time Pro Pro Bowler, defensive back for the Dolphins, the Chiefs from 98 to 2008. Um, His dad's only, what, 44 years old. On his Wikipedia page, it says. So Sertan... Uh, now, now in the NFL as well. He, if his dad would have been kind of a Tom Brady, they could have legitimately played on the same team, which is kind of crazy to think about. But um, supremely athletic. His dad was only 5'11", so his son's 6'2". That's that's kind of a considerable difference when it comes to defensive back. Yeah, and now if you listen to the whole last rant conversation I had, you're going to be like, well, now he's making his predictions and acting like he knows what he's talking about. No, I, I'm just making why I'm making my predictions based on what I think I know what I'm talking about, but I know that I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, So that's, that's a pick I really like. I think he could be um, ultra all pro the next champ Bailey here in Denver, or, you know, apparently I've heard rumors rumblings that that pick was for the green Bay Packers. And apparently uh, Aaron Rodgers does not want to stay in green Bay and some people have pegged Denver as a possible place where he could end up. If that's true, the Packers also picked Eric Stokes with the 29th overall pick. And that's a uh, cornerback out of Georgia. Um if if that's true and and they end up with both those guys, I I like both those picks actually. I am kind of okay taking elite level defensive backs. I was think I feel like they're kind of good safe picks. Um but I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe that is dumb to think. But it just seems like I can imagine them going, <laughs> going out pretty well, and having having good seasons. Um, Rodgers. What do I want to have happen with Rodgers? By the way, uh, this is this is an interesting topic. People in the, in the and Vikings fans need to think about. Quite frankly, I think it'd be awesome if we get Aaron Rodgers on the Vikings team. Is that possible? <laughs> Um, that would be the ideal uh, t- for me, is Rodgers goes there. My second favorite outcome for Rodgers would be um, that he just leaves entirely. So there's kind of the standoff. The Packers will say, hey, man, you, you got to play with us. You signed the contract. Rodgers goes, I'm quitting. No way. I'm not going to play for you. That would be epic. In fact, I might even like that more than him coming to the Vikings. I don't know. I, I think if he came to the Vikings, it'd be pretty sweet. So I think I'd rather have that, kind of like a Brett Favre 2.0. Uh, but if he, if he also just sat on the sidelines, that would be phenomenal. And probably the third thing would be if a trade could be orchestrated uh, with the Packers now who just got Justin Field. or I'm sorry, the Bears. Bears and Packers. That would be kind of my third ideal. Speaking of the Vikings did we like what what they did uh, and if you're if you're just tuning in the vikings had the 14th overall pick we've been needing to draft an offensive lineman for like the last 100 years and it just we we never do it and when we do we kind of mess up so everyone was hopeful in this offensive line laden talented laden draft that we would get a really awesome pick and there were a few there were a few big names here in in the offensive line world that were that were likely to be available. Penny Sewell who was probably the top prospect, he went at seven and I was um, I think I was hoping since people raved so much about him and his elite level that that the Vikes would do something to trade up and get him okay but we didn't do that Sewell went seven overall to the Lions all right and then the next guy that was sort of on the board that people were saying well, you know, if we got him it'd be great. That was Rashawn Slater at Northwestern. The big the big thing about him was that he playing in you know, in the Big Ten, I guess went up against um Chase Chase, whatever his name is, the all the all world defensive end who plays for the Washington Redskins now. He used to play at Ohio State. That guy. Um, apparently was shut down by Rashawn Slater. And so people said Slater's the best the best tackle in this draft. Okay, Sewell's a guard I think and Slater's a tackle. Whatever the difference. Okay? Slater. We didn't get him. He goes 13th. So remember, we are slated at 14th, right? Well, we ended up trading, and I think we traded this pick be- well before Slater had been pit- had been drafted. But we traded our 14th pick to the Jets and moved down to pick 23 three, I think. So so now it's like, Vikings fans, if you were watching this live, which I was not, um, I, I did kind of follow a little bit on ESPN. So when I saw that we traded down, I was like, you got to be kidding me. What are we going to do? And then woke up the next day. Uh, I wasn't going to stay up for another two hours to find out who we picked. Let's be honest. So what happens at 14? Well, the Jets take Elijah Vera Tucker. He is the number one ranked... Um, offensive guard. Oh, I'm sorry. So Slater and and Sewell were both tackles. Sorry. So Sewell's a tackle. Slater's a tackle. Vera Tucker gets taken. He's the number one ranked guard. Jets take him. This is probably the the pick that we will look back on and go, if Vera Tucker is the next Randall McDaniel, we will all be like, wow, we had him. We could have had him. Because we could have had all three of these guys, theoretically. We could have traded enough capital if we really wanted to. The Bears moved up a bunch of picks. They got their quarterback at 10. But anyway, we didn't do that. and So Vera Tucker goes, that's going to be the one that, that could come back to bite us. Um, where's the thing, the post-draft analysis? Uh, there was a pretty funny one here that I saw. Something about hand fights. Um. These on ESPN they've got hilarious they got the commentary for all the players and it's really good oh yeah no that's for quitty pay okay so coming up here right now I'm leading you through the drama of the NFL draft the other position the Vikings really needed their defensive line was terrible last year and we we Daniil Hunter was hurt seems like he's got like some sort of neck injury and he's asking for like four hundred and twenty million dollars a year so we're in trouble Okay cuz Hunter wants everything. He is he's absolutely the most supremely athletically gifted defensive lineman in the league, but you're coming off a neck injury, buddy. I don't know. Can we offer you the house? Uh we don't we also don't have money. The Vikings don't have money to give cuz we keep paying our veterans, our fan favorites to stick around, which is which is fine on one level, but but we really don't have much to work with. Um so the, what what can the Vikings really do? We need to draft some young defensive lineman. So that's another need. We either really we what we needed here was draft an elite defensive lineman or draft an elite offensive lineman, and I think everyone in the fan base is happy and probably it's the right move to make as a team. Well, a, a couple of defensive linemen are available. One of them, Quitty Pay, okay, Quitty Pay is his name. 6'3", 261 pounds out of Michigan. He's the number one overall ranked defensive lineman. A pre draft analysis. Okay, listen to this. Pay plays with good pad level, flashes the ability to make plays in the backfield, and chases with good effort. The second part of that sentence was normal. Okay. I'm not sure what plays with good pad level means. Oh my gosh. Wait for this next part. It's ridiculous. He needs to make strides as a hand fighter. What? does that mean he needs to make strides as a hand fighter I I know what that means okay in NFL lingo but I feel like in today's world can you write that about someone he needs to make strides as a hand fighter okay well anyway we didn't get him he uh ended up going to at 21 the Colts I like that pick a lot for them the Colts had a pretty good year last year too I think so that might end up being a really nice pick for them at 21 great value vikings at 23 and they draft christian derisaw christian derisaw 6'5, 322. and everyone's saying wow he's really big that's not that big for an offensive lineman i mean it's i feel like that's just a normal size um it's on maybe the larger end of the spectrum maybe average is six four three three fifteen but um, we've definitely seen. I mean, obviously, Brian McKinney was six eight, well uh, over three fifty. So we've seen people very large. But I think general offensive guards, especially left guards, are they're getting they're like six seven is kind of like you got to be between six five and six seven to to anchor that outside of the line. If you're like a a key, especially if you're not someone who's going to be the, the super super mobile, fast. You're just kind of a quarterback uh, blindside protector. But anyway, um, the Virginia Tech. Athletic director, media guy, that's two different jobs. The media director person, I think, was on KFAN a week ago talking about this dude, and apparently he is kind of the next Brian McKinney. He's ultra-talented, hasn't allowed a sack in college in two years, and he could be really good, but his motor is the the thing that comes into question. Okay, so that's all fine and dandy. Everyone at the end was saying what a great pick this was and how amazing it was for general manager uh, Spielman to to basically trade down in the draft and still get the guy that we wanted. Plus, because he traded down, he got some picks from the Jets. Uh, there's a couple things as, the, as a sideline fan reporter that I would like to say I'm not sure we, we can give him too much praise for, okay? First of all, the Bears uh, traded up, as you recall. they They traded up from, where were they? Where were they sitting, actually? I know they got up they traded up to 10. Um I think they were sitting somewhere in the 20s, like maybe 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 20, you know. They moved up about 10 slots is what I heard. Uh so they did in order to do that with the New York Giants. Yeah, cuz the Giants picked 20 21st. Oh, 20th. Okay, so they moved up about 10 spots with the Giants, and to do that, they 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 traded a lot away, like a, a first-round pick, something in the second round for this year, next year, first-round pick, something something in uh, the second round next year. Right? They, they gave up a lot to move up those 10 spots. Well, the Vikings allowed the Jets to move up 10 spots or 9 spots, and all that the Vikings got in return was a third-round pick, two third-round picks, and some other later-round picks. So we got more... More picks, but they were all late in the draft. So I think it's valid to say that the Vikings, they gave up, you know, 10 spots in the first round. Didn't get very much for it from uh, the Jets. That's one thing. Now, I think it's possible, when since it's happening draft night, maybe the Bears make that move. The Giants got a big haul for giving up 10 spots to the Bears. Bears had to give up a lot. Maybe the Jets were like, um, hmm, we're not going to do that. We're not going to pay the same price to do that. Sorry, Vikes. Um, and the Vikings were just kind of stuck because, you know, the Jets had made the move first and they got they got the ransom for it. It's possible. But point being, I think if you give up 10 spots in the first round, you should get a little bit more than like a handful of fifth round draft picks, a few third, even third round. It's like, that's not that big a deal. And the whole, the whole talk then was, well, they're going to use those picks and move up from the third to the second for day two. But that didn't happen either. So I'm disappointed on that. The other thing is, I think I'm just disappointed that for once here, Spielman doesn't decide to just, I don't know, put some more chips on the table and go, let's get that seventh overall Penny Sewell guy, right? There's an element to me that wonders if he read somewhere in a managerial book, like the one thing you can't do is trade away the house for um, a, a draft pick kind of like the Bears did with Trubis- Trubisky a couple years ago, right? The, dra- the In the, the draft that had Patrick Mahomes, the Bears traded away their entire city, including the Willis Tower— for the rights to take the number two overall pick, which they used on Mitchell Trubisky because they thought Trubisky is the guy of the future. And in doing so, um, passed up an opportunity to draft Mahomes at number 10. They could have had him. Um, and they drafted Trubisky, who's been a pretty much a bust. And I think the Spielman must have this, like, Norwegian-Minnesota, I'm scared to do anything. Like, um, I will always be ultra-conservative. I'm never going to trade up in the draft because if I do that, what I'm basically telling people is, I believe this guy is a really good prospect. I'm willing willing to risk going after him. Because if it doesn't work out, Spielman really looks bad, and, and it it doesn't ever really matter if you trade down. It's sort of like it's risk-free to trade back and accumulate more picks. Because if you make, the, like, Daniil Hunter, the pick that when we got Daniel Hunter, he was a late-round pick, superstar athleticism. That's a great pick by Spielman. Now everyone praises him. Wow, Spielman in the draft. Look at him. He, he analyzed the draft prospects. He found this guy that's ultra-talented. He drafted him in the late rounds. And what a value pick. And I think Spielman's just like, I want to be the guy who finds that seventh-rounder diamond in the rough. Okay, that's one thought is maybe we should be critical of him for just not really taking a risk because he knows it's much more um, secure to always trade back and find picks that way. But I think there's another side of the coin that could be true. I think in many drafts, the case is that we as fans do not really understand the difference in talent level between the rounds. And so for us, we always hear the name recognition that comes with first round picks before the draft. This guy's our projected first rounder. Then that name becomes a big deal. We just associate him with talent. We think he's a big deal. Whereas some of these guys, when they really look at the draft, they might go, okay, this draft has about 10 players who are on a completely different playing field than the rest of the draft. If you can sneak in the top 10, it's going to be great. But if you're at that 11th pick, that 11th pick is about as valuable as the 40th pick. Because the next 30 guys, are all on about the next the same playing field and then when you get you know if you keep going back maybe 30 to 300 are all pretty close so it doesn't really matter it's it's better to have more picks because you're kind of just playing the lottery there anyway i'm guessing that's how spielman views the draft is after about pick 30 or 40 all those picks are completely the same so it's you've kind of identified a few prospects you think could work or might have a high ceiling, and you just really want more picks so that you can have um you know more ping pong balls, so to speak in in the running I think that that could be and I, and I'm sure from draft to draft it differs because some drafts i I know they say, you know this is a three three athlete draft. there's really three unbelievable athletes. everyone else is kind of the same and and I don't know, maybe that's the case here on this draft, but Yeah. Uh, A couple other picks I I did kind of like. I I think that Devonta Smith seems like a really cool guy. He's the one who won the Heisman wide receiver for Alabama, and he is going to be playing in Philadelphia. It's kind of too bad that that we didn't get to see Carson Wentz with a high-profile receiver. They sort of messed up their draft last year, but um, he'll be with whoever their young gun is that they're going with. I forget who the uh, Eagles. The Eagles ditched Carson, and are going with someone else. A lot of cool receivers to follow, um, but I, I like him, I think, the most. And it's weird. You're seeing a lot of last names here, and you recognize like J.C. Horn. Um, that's the wide re, old wide receiver for the New Orleans Saints Um, Horn, uh, what's his first name? Why can't I think of it right now? it's, It's off the top of my head. But anyway, players who I watched play in the NFL as like a 12, 13, 14 year old, um, Are now their kids are getting drafted. That's kind of interesting to see see that generational thing and and him and Pat Sertan drafted back to back. Former NFL players' kids. I know they're getting they get drafted a lot. Just now, I'm like picking it out just as a casual fan. Like I recognize that last name. Who is that? Well, here we are into the show we haven't even started talking about the olympics which is what i started by saying this was going to be the whole show you know it was going to be about olympic stuff so i think it's about time we get to that um and i have in front of me a wonderful document it's 301 pages on the history of the olympic trials now unfortunately this document only takes us through i want to say 1996 this could be kind of a tragedy um but um It is going to give us a little bit of insight on some of the earlier events in the Games, which uh, my goal is to just kind of share some interesting and fun highlights and stories, interesting facts that I find as I peruse through this in a lead-up, the build-up to the Olympic Trials. So here's something I didn't even really realize, but... Uh, It wasn't until 1908 that a series of meetings were used as tryouts for the Olympic team selection. In both 1908 and 1912, the Eastern tryouts were the major meeting with athletes from across the U.S. attempting to impress the selectors. Athletes who competed in London are marked with an asterisk. So basically what I have before me here are four, four different events. 1908 we had in the West, there was a meet at Stanford on May 9th, Central Chicago May 29th, Um, IC4A, I don't know what that stands for. That's Philadelphia, May 29th through the 30th. And then Eastern, it says Philadelphia, June 6th. So I don't know if that intercollegiate something, what does IC stand for? Um, But it gives a little bit of uh, insight on each of these events, like a, a full paragraph for each of these so it shows the winners for for all the events. We're going to skip ahead to the distance since we you know can sort of uh, sort of skip ahead to that and see what's going on. So the 800 meters, just to give you a taste here in the western uh, in the western meet, Clarence Edmondson from Idaho ran a 159.2. Andre Glarner from f- France. What on earth? It says S F O C slash France. His name is Andre. Uh, he's second, no time. Third, Eugene Smith from California. <clears throat> Central, Horace Rainey. Rain- Rainey. He has a star, so he competed. 157, James Lightbody. I recognize that name. Not sure why. He has a star, so he also competed. That was a 157 to win. Walter Comstock did not. We got third. He didn't compete. And Lloyd-Jones ran a 202. Charles French from Cornell, maybe. He also placed Uh, second, and made the team. No time listed there. The Eastern, Mel Shepard ran 154 and dominated, and he, uh, he, it says Shepard dominated the Eastern race, went on to win the Olympic title by 10 yards. Uh, John Halstead made the final, and he was in the trials. Was he even in the trials? Why don't I see him in the trials? Interesting. Anyway, Anything interesting in that Eastern Trials? I don't see any good stories on that one. Yeah. So, <clears throat> in the 1500, though, the interesting thing that I find is, again, we have our Mel Shepard. He didn't run in the in the 1500 in the Trials, but still made the team. So that's also different now, right? You don't have just people selecting. Um, it's you get to... Uh, we can. We, I'm sorry. Today you have to run in the trials and place top three and have the standard and all that stuff. But now, back here in 1908, they had they had people. Oh yeah, we want you on the team. Look at these times for the 1500. The winning time in the Western Trials 4:25. <clears throat> the winning time in the Central even James Lightbody ran 4:11. He made the team with a 4:11. John Halstead, remember that's the guy who made the Olympic final. He ran 4:30, and he won by Two hundredths of a second. He was not selected for the mile crew. Uh, John Halstead also ran in the Eastern trials the next week and ran 401, which was an American record. So he was sandbagging it at the collegiate one, I guess. It says Halstead was fourth at the bell in a race which had been led by Beck. Hollis did begin his kick shortly after passing the bell. He went 12 yards clear by the finish and looked as though he could have run faster if necessary. As it was, he broke James Lightbody's U.S. record by more than four seconds. That's a lot for a 1500. Shep- Shepard had cho- had to choose between the 800 and the 1500 at the trials, but was nevertheless selected for the Olympic 1500, which he won. 800-meter Olympian Co. doubled up in the 1500, and Frank Riley also ran in the Olympic 1500. So Shepard makes it in both uh, mo- both events, I guess, which he won in the 1500. Did he win the 800 in the Olympics, too? Did he do both of those? Yeah, so the 1500 and the 800 won by Mel Shepard, 1908, historic. That that You never see that now. The 3,200-meter steeplechase, not the 3,000-meter steeplechase. we got a time of 1047. Um. It doesn't have... James Lightbody in there again. They all ran in London. Only Isle, Eiley made the final. John Eiley. Spelled the same way as the guy in the Bad Madison Lake Association. Hmm. It says here in the marathon at Boston, 20th of April. Would that be the, the Boston Marathon? These times are actually pretty good. 2.25 for 1908. 2.25, 2.26, 2.26, 2.27. Michael Ryan... Um, and then the guy was selected from the St. Louis, Sydney Hatch, and Joseph Forshaw ran a 2.30. It says that Hayes went on to win the most famous marathon of all in London, where Italian Dorando Pietri was disqualified after being helped over the line. Forshaw placed third. Forshaw had ran 2.26 in the trials. Alton Welton placed fourth. Um, Louis Tuanima. Uh, a Hopi Indian was ninth at the age of 20. Okay, interesting. Wow. <clears throat> There's your marathon team. So we had the winner there. Yes, the infamous 1908 marathon. Um, any other interesting stories from the 1908 Olympic trials that we want to share? Honestly, not a whole lot of action here. And the other events are, you know, we have the 110 hurdles, um, the 400 meter hurdles. Which, in the Western, 59 seconds to win that still. Just crazy. Charles Bacon ran 55 and four-fifths of a second. 55, 55.8 for those of you doing the quick math for the American record. Um, then we have the, the high jump. Give yourself a second here. Guess how high the winners of the high jump in the Olympic trials were. Okay, give you a second here. Um, here we go. Western, Dave Martin of Stanford jumped 5'7 and three-quarters. And Ed Bull. Five, six sometimes I just love these names too these are great Norman Patterson won the central five feet 11 and a half now that is as high as my PR officially in high jump so I guess I could have tied for the win at the 1908 central trials um the Eastern though Harry Porter jumped six two. Second place was six feet Herbert Gidney 511. So, the highest jumper in the Olympic trials, me, Terry Porter, went on to lift his six, two and a half frame. So, same height as me, over his six, two and three fourths in the Olympics to take the gold medal. So, six, two and three quarters wins the gold 1908 in the Olympics. In the pole vault, give yourself a second to guess just how high the pole vaulters would have been going. What was the Olympic trials record and an American record, I will say? Um,. Here it is, Alfred Gilbert from Yale, twelve feet seven and three quarters inches. That was the American record. The interesting story behind this: Edward Cook, the 1907 AEU champion and already selected for the long jump, long jump and pole vault, was added to the imposing U.S. squad for London and tied for gold with Gilbert after placing fourth in the Olympic long jump. In fact, he was the prototype vaulter with quality PRs in a range of events, including. Oh, this guy should have been a decath. Twenty-one point six for the two hundred and twenty yards, fifteen point six in the hurdles, six foot two in the high jump. Gilbert was more the gymnast with college credentials in both wrestling and gymnastics. So that's Gilbert was that. Huh. Well, so wait, so was it Cook? Cook was Yeah. I think yeah, okay, so Cook was the guy. Gilbert was the gymnast. Wrestling and gymnastics. Dan Kelly was the 100-yard U.S. record holder at nine and three fifths of a second. That's nine point six seconds. The AAU winner in 1907, Kelly went on to play second in London with 23 feet three and a quarter inches. That that would win the section meet in high school in Minnesota for sure. And you might win the state meet at most states. He leaped 24 feet six and a half, a long way ahead of his previous form. Irons. Irons, that's Frank Irons, was the smallest man ever to win Olympic gold in the long jump. Oh man, this is a good story. Long jump, Frank Irons jumped twenty-two feet six and three quarters of an inch to make the Olympic team, but he won the Olympic gold. Wow, Irons. Okay, so I'm sorry, I read that too fast. Irons leaped twenty-four feet six and a half, so he he went two feet longer at the Olympics. Went from twenty-two and a half feet to 24 and a half feet uh in his long jump and he's five feet five inches 135 pounds the smallest man ever to win the olympic gold frank irons with the miracle jump there's your story of the day crazy how about the triple jump what happened there i think i'm kind of amazed at these triple jump lengths too and we got some good names we got forrest fletcher third place in the central meet at the western meet and the other the ic4a they didn't even hold it uh, but the Eastern, Platt Adams. Platt Adams, John O'Connell, and Frank Frissel. Um, the, uh, the following also, this where they jumped 46 feet, 11 inches was the winner. Um, best place was, best placing American was um, Adams, Platt Adams. He got fifth. That's pretty good for triple jump way back in the day. I can't believe they even really knew what they were doing for that. What a weird event. Have they ever triple jumped. World record that event's about sixty feet, by the way. Just for some clarification, forty six feet eleven is not even our women's American record now. I think the women's American record is forty eight something, but that's not that far off. And I mean, um, they just got broken um, by uh, Ujori again, Katara, Katara Ujori. I can't, I can never say her name right. Discs throw. Ah, Who cares? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, We did win the gold in that in the Olympics too. Um, Third straight title won in the hammer throw by none other than John Flanagan. I bet you've heard that name before. Three time Olympic champion in the hammer throw. That's 1908. The Olympic team. There's your history segment. We'll keep it going um, with another one from 1912. Long time ago. But here's the thing: is so I was doing. This is another Olympic history story. We're jumping ahead just a little bit. I, I just, I have to talk about this guy because maybe you know who he is, but I just feel like if I'm a runner fanatic and I didn't really know who this was, maybe you did. Richard Earl Johnson, <clears throat> okay, and known mostly, typically Earl. It says Richard Earl, quote, Earl Johnson. So I think most people know him as Earl Johnson. Earl Johnson, an African-American cross-country runner in the U.S., okay? He was born in 1891 in Woodstock, Virginia, And he lived until 1965. He was the 1921 national cross-country running champion. In 1922, he defended his championship. He was beaten by Vilratola in Van Cortlandt Park. Uh, Ville Rotola, I, I'm not sure if I'm saying him, that name correct. Ville Rotola is one of the most famous distance runners of the when the Finnish were very, very dominant. He won five Olympic gold medals, three Olympic silver medals in the 20s. Holds the record for winning the most athletic medals at a single games. Four golds and two silvers. That's track most games. That's crazy. All right, second in terms of most athletic golds at a single games. So, um... The most medals won. There's your track and field. The most medals won in Olympics for a track and field athlete is held by a distance runner. He was part of the Flying Finns. That's Vilho Aino-Ritola, who died in 1982. Wow, long life for him. <laughs> that's kind of crazy. Um, so that's he lost, our guy Earl Johnson lost to this guy in 1922, but uh, since he was Finnish, obviously, still was the national champ, which, honestly, even just that, that whole component is sort of interesting because, um, you know, what a, what a showdown race, famous Van Cortlandt Park, you know, but the 20s. I'm just – I don't know what it is. For me, picturing people back in that time period, like really taking athletics seriously is, is just kind of mind-boggling. Keep in mind here, 22, that's three years after World War One. I. I mean, this is a time when sports had a much different place in people's daily lives. Um, and not only that, obviously, I think even today um, – African-American distance runners are very, very rare in the United States, right? I mean, like like people, um, you know, we, we, we always hear of the Kenyans and the Ethiopians um, as distance runners and, and that bloodline there. But in America, typically our best African-American athletes play football, basketball, baseball, right? It's, uh, it's not quite like hockey. And you do see some of them for sure. Most of our um, uh, African-American distance runners now – you know are some some not not even being born in america right they're they're there's they have somalian background some of some of that i remember i even raced against some of the somalians who had been had immigrated to the fargo area wilmer um there's some in minneapolis i guess too i don't know it, it's it's not it's not a typical sport for african americans to go to to go into is distance running um, I don't know if, that, if that's a crazy take. Is that a crazy take? I, I don't feel like it's that crazy of a take, but for sure in the 20s, it seems kind of bizarre. It would be interesting um, uh, you know, to read a little bit more history about lo- what life was like exactly in the 20s, um, but I think the if I'm just going by stereotypes here, hopefully I don't take us off the air for this, but if I'm going by stereotypes, right, is people who you see the LeBron Jameses, the Kobe Bryant stories, not Kobe Bryant, bad example, LeBron James, good example. African Americans who come from um, poverty and go to the NBA and are mega millionaires—that's that's almost more of the NBA draft night uh, magical story. So you're not often seeing uh, the, the childhood dream. You know how you can how can you, you can make it make it out of this and make riches and make millions. Go into distance running, you know. We, we know that's not the story for anyone of any race but and I'm not saying that that's what it have been like in the 20s but I think in the 20s life for African Americans would have been a, a heck of a lot different than it is now a hundred years later. so I just find it fascinating that he was that and 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 he was a um I think a did it did I already say this what his job was too? worked as a, I think he was working in a steelworks company, a a rare black athlete of his day. He worked for the Edgar Thompson Steelworks in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So the reason I bring that up too, is he just kind of picturing what his daily life and regimen would have been like is fascinating to me. Um, I I find that extremely fascinating. You you picture the twenties again, If you just had to live in today's environment, if you were living in 2021 and you were a steel worker and a distance runner, that is, that's BA, man. Like if you are an Olympic athlete in distance running and you work all day in a steel mill, that's crazy, you know? And his personal best in the 10K, 3217, that's eight seconds faster than my personal best in the 10K. Um, that's It's just kind of phenomenal. So his Olympic record, he competed in two Olympics, 1920 Summer Olympics in the 10K. And he also placed, Oh, he competed in 24 in the 10K in cross-country individual and cross-country men's team. So let's take a look at Earl Johnson, what he did. I, I just find this fascinating. Actually, quick, I'll read the Olymp, Olympic, Olympamedia, Olympamedia. How do you say that? Olymp- Olympedia. Great website if you want to go there. Olympedia.org. That's O-L-Y-M-P-E-D-I-A.org. You can find everything about everyone and all all results about everything. The incredible statistics. They got the biography for Earl Johnson. He is measurements. It even has that. 170 centimeters and 59 kilo- kilograms. I don't know what that means at all. Birthplace, Virginia. He died in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 1965 again, so 40 years after his his Olympic. It says, Earl Johnson was the first nationally prominent black distance runner. He made his Olympic debut in 1920 when he was eliminated in the heats of the 10K. Four years later, there were no heats for this event, and Johnson placed eighth in a field of 43. Even just stopping there, an eighth place finish in a field of 43 today would be an incredible accomplishment for an American uh, distance runner. It would be be good. We would be semi-happy with that, I think. I guess obviously Rupp's silver medal in London really raised some of the expectations, but that was an incredible raise. Uh, the cross country event in Paris, Johnson finished third. <laughs> third as an individual. He finished behind, uh, these names will will be familiar to you Villa Rotilla, right? And Pavo Nermi. So, Pavo Nermi, Villa, Ro- Villa Rotilla, the two of the greatest, Pavo Nermi is one of the greatest athletes of all time. Okay, so those two distance runners and then Earl Johnson. I mean, if that happened today, again, just picture that, you know, maybe it's Jakob Ingebrigtsen and then, I don't know, Nick Willis and then third place, the bronze medal, you know, and it would have to be the 1500 if we're talking those two athletes and and uh, then you'd have, you know, someone someone from America, an, an African-American-born steel worker from America. Again, that story would be insane today. I just think it's it's... I've never heard it, man. I never heard it. So crazy. That's cool. He is a silver or he was the bronze medalist in individual, but he also led the US to the silver medals in the team event. And then it mentions again he was the AAU cross country title champ in 1921. On the track, he was the AAU champion at 5 miles for 3 straight years from 1921 um <laughs> just that's a typo. And in 1921 and in 1924 he won the AAU 10 miles. So he almost won the 5 and the 10. Um on, on three consecutive occasions, but the five mile three times in a row, twice the ten mile three years apart. Nineteen twenty one and nineteen twenty three, Johnson also won what was termed the Detroit Marathon, although the distance was only twenty two miles. He competed he competed for the Edgar Thompson Steelworks AA team near Pittsburgh and later became a sports writer for the Pittsburgh Courier and managed an African American sandlot baseball team at Edgar Thompson Works. It'd be interesting again, it'd be interesting if he had a journal you could know like what was his daily life like? Was it was he training you know three days a week I, I know back then they they it was kind of crazy like that they're they're training they didn't really even know exactly what they were doing and again working and just having different lives so fascinating story i want to click on the cross-country team men. i'm going to click the link here and just sort of see that race it says in this this is the men's cross-country team race um and the rule is, it was a ten thousand meter point for point Point for place scoring from, an indiv- from the individual event with the top three finishers for each team counting in the team scoring. It says, led by Pavo Nermi and Villa Rotilla, uh, was a strong favorite in this race. And when they finished 1-2 with Nermi two and a half minutes clear of the third place runner in the individual event, there seemed no way Finland could lose. But the 1924 cross-country race was held on one of the hottest days in Paris history. Temperatures climbing over 103 degrees and only 15 of 38 starters finished the race. Wow. The third finish runner was Heki Limitianen, and he barely finished to allow the finster with the gold belt. Just imagine that. if he, he went to finish. Limitianen was stumbling near the finish, overcome by the heat. He stopped 30 minute, 30 meters short of the finish and tried to turn off the course. <laughs> oh my goodness. See, this is why. This is why we read these things. These are great stories. Great stories. If he doesn't finish the race, US wins the gold. Okay, so it says Limited was stumbling near the finish, overcome by the heat. He stopped 30 minutes, tried to go off the course, but the crowd yelled at him that he had not yet crossed the finish line. And he returned to the course disoriented and walked across the finish line, taking over, oh my gosh, taking over two minutes to finish his last 30 minute, meters. Do we have video of that? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the amount of clicks that would get today? Especially when the gold medal is on the line. Crazy man. Disoriented, 103 degree heat. And, and so here's the times, by the way. If you're wondering like what what's the context here? Well, this is insane. I mean the Americans actually because of that almost they really slid into the spot. I'm looking at the at the um <clears throat> at the events, right? So we got the team the team places here, Pavo. 3254 for Pavo Nermi. Okay, he wins by a mile. Second place is his teammate Villa, 34-19. Okay. So they go one-two. All right. Earl Johnson comes in third. He's a minute back from them, 35-21. So he had to run that race pretty much all by himself. Okay, fourth place. This is where it gets a little bit interesting. Henry Laveau from France, 36-44. France placed third, okay? Third in the team scoring. U.S. was second, Finland was first. Now let's go through here. Remember, Heikki is his name. He is <clears throat> he's fin- Finland's third runner. Everyone else like, DNF'd on the Finnish team. They had six athletes. They all DNF'd. So U.S., we're we're, we're up to fifth place now. You, you following? Finland went one, two. U.S. comes in three. France in fourth. Fifth place should have been Heikki. according to if we're doing the math right, if it actually took him two minutes to finish it. So he's coming in, right? It should be fifth place, Finland, gold medal wrapped up. Well, he stumbles on the ground. And here's how the people that come come by him. It would have been Art Studenroth of the U.S., 3645. Then in sixth place, Gus Fager, Thirty seven forty. Um, and in seventh place, Gaston Hewitt. That's France's second runner, thirty-seven fifty-two. If you're a Finnish fan, you're going, "Oh my gosh, we should have won gold here." And if our guy doesn't cross the line here pretty quick, we're in trouble. But fortunately, he does. I guess obviously, the U.S. they now they now have their three guys in front, so would they, they would have they would have been hoping and praying that Hecky would have stayed on the ground. Hecky comes across in thirty-eight eighteen. 38-18 to get eighth. And then ninth place right behind him, though, was France. 41-48, quite a ways back. But still, some of these times don't even make sense, actually. How is he ninth if he's 41-48? It says here that Spain had a... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm reading out the different points. This isn't working. I'm reading the wrong points. Not That's not the place that's the points. Forget everything I said, pretty much. Well, not everything. I mean, essentially... He still was thirty-eight, eighteen. That means two Americans went by him at the end. Oh, that's just crazy. That was the 10K there. What happened in the 10K on the track? He got eighth. I guess that's not quite as interesting. So it's it, 103 degree temperatures. That's wild. In the 10K on the track, um, the... <laughs> wow, this is crazy. 10K, 1924. The greatest distance runner on the world was Finland's Pavo Nervi, but Finnish officials asked him not to run this race as they felt he was entered in too many events. What? What on earth? So it's just like, dude, you're in too many. Give some people another chance. That race was won by Villa Rotilla in 3023. That's a phenomenal time. This is when Earl Johnson ran his PR of 3217, got eighth place. Um, that's wild. Finland really dominated Aeroberg 31, 43, by the way, he was one who dropped out in the cross country and he had a teammate behind him in thirty-one fifty. 50. Edvin Vide from Sweden, 30, 55. So phenomenal times really, if they're accurate, I guess. That's kind of wild in that event. The other events in that games and the 5,000, I'm assuming that would have been won by Pavo. Yep. Pavo and Ermi won that. Villa Rotilla was, so Villa ran the 5K, the 10K, and cross country. Pavo would have run the 1500. He ran a 3:53 in the 1500. Why were they so mad at all the events he ran? He didn't doesn't seem like he ran that many events. He ran the 1500. He ran cross country. Is that it? I feel like that's it. Huh. Well, the world history here. Where where is Pavo? Why are they so mad at him for running so many? I think they should have put him in there. and Arena click on it just to see what he what did he run in 1924? Let's let's double check. Oh. He ran the 1500 one gold, ran the 5k one gold. He ran the 3000 meter team. Oh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> he won five golds, but one of them comes from the same event, the individual cross country and the team cross country. So he gets two two medals for that. The 3,000 meters. 3,000 meters team. What on earth does that even mean? Six man ran for each team with three to count point for play scoring. Is this a 3,000 meter cross country? I guess I'm a little confused. The U.S. got third in that, by the way. Final 25. What are these? There's not good results here. I don't understand exactly what they're saying. Why does it say three hours? That just doesn't make sense. Someone want to look into what the 3,000-meter team event was. That's a little bit interesting. Oh, here we go. We've got some times here. Round 1. So, Pavel, 847. Villa, 848. They have another guy run 848. Heat, 2. Let's look at the final. It says, Pavel runs 832. And then it says, Villa at 20 meters for his time. And Elias at 1 meter. Is that like how far behind they were that they just like stopped them? Not sure. I really understand that actually how that works. It doesn't explain the rules really well enough. Well, this has been quite the podcast. It's pretty phenomenal though. I think the Earl Johnson story, I think, you know, we, we were through February. I was trying to find black history month books and that's definitely one. I think that I should pull out for next time. The story of Earl Johnson, first great American distance runner was 1920s, man. Um, I couldn't find a lot more information on him but he's someone that needs a book to be written for him and I have another awesome um, black athlete black distance runner story that we can talk about next time in another history segment we've got kind of long today but um, Ted Corbett the, the website that is dedicated to him it's just phenomenal and he has some interesting training things so you'll have to stay tuned for our next hitter skier podcast when we dive into Ted Corbett's training because um, it, it it blows um, anything I can even imagine doing training out of the water and just running. So we'll we'll talk about that next time. Thank you for joining on joining us on this kind of news roundup and potpourri of Olympics things and all all of that together on the Cedar Skier Podcast. We'll see you next time.